Hello everyone and welcome back to Sully's Open Conversation, the show that aims to have an unfamiliar conversation in a familiar environment. Today I have taken the trip down to Whitstable to come and meet with Chris. Hi welcome George. Chris, hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. It's not too bad, the weather. Yeah, the rain. Drizzly, but it's actually getting milder, so that's good. It's just holding off, isn't it? Yeah. And we've also, of course, got Cooper got joining Cooper. us as well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm very good. well, thank you. Very well. Um, so, me and Chris met each other, we were actually just on the call, wasn't it? Working both uh, in mental health yeah. and suicide yeah. prevention. Um, but I'll let, I'll let Chris introduce himself. Yeah, so hi everyone, my name's Chris Murray. Um, where to start? <laughs> <laughs> this, is the, this is probably the most difficult bit, yeah. Um, so, um, personally, uh, I have experience of being suicidal, uh, which was back in 2016, after about 20 years previous to that, um, with poor mental health. Um, up until that point, I was told, because I was taken to the hospital twice by ambulance in 48 hours in July 2016, that after being held in a padded room, seen by numerous mental health and psychiatrists and doctors that the previous diagnosis I'd had of depression was just a sticking plaster and counselling um, and um, since then diagnosed with clinical depression, anxiety and OCD. Uh, my OCD uh, type is the, kind of the check-in and control um, and also um, I'm going through, I have been having regular reviews and I just had one yesterday around my bipolar type 2 and, and the medication I'm taking for that um, to balance my mood and help stabilise uh, my mood. So um, since then, um, I work within government and I've also set up my own private business as well. So as a mental health, suicide first aid, consultancy and training business. So work across all sectors, um, train people, uh, mental health first aid within government too. Uh, and done a lot really, I've moved kind of a lot more into the diversity and inclusion space. Amazing. So around, you know, protected characteristics as part of the Quality Act. Um, and diversity, uh, sorry, um, equity and, and quality as well as, as part of that. Um, my kind of passions a bit about me, which um, I think is part of my story around my mental health conditions, where I am a sociable person, I like to go out a lot, and up until 2016, I was very private about that. So the instances where I would make excuses not to go somewhere, mm. or I would leave people on a night out and not tell them and just disappear. Um, and part of that was because uh, I started to feel overwhelmed, my anxiety, I felt like I was going to have a panic attack sometimes. So, uh, And that really has kind of impacted me since 2016 where I think one of the positives is that now people know kind of seriousness and, and, and people close to me, friends and family, have an understanding around, better understanding around mental health and how to support me. So mm. that I feel like I've been honest and open of times when I don't feel comfortable doing something. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I have Cooper. Cooper, are you going to say hello? Up, Aww. up. Here he Cooper. is. <laughs> Bless uh, him. He's three in June, but one of the reasons I got him was to help with my anxiety, especially it's in kind public of a therapy spaces. Dog. Yeah. So mm. I think kind of my, my apart from it being generalised anxiety disorder, I was diagnosed with social phobia and agoraphobia, two kind of traits within that. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, busy spaces, crowded spaces. Which being a social person again can sometimes be difficult, but having him helps massively, and also driving as well. Um, and then so apart from animals and dogs, um, music I like music. Um, support Middlesbrough Football Club. Fingers crossed we get promoted. <laughs> um, like going out to friends, families. I love travelling, which some people say is weird with my conditions. How can you enjoy travelling if it's something that, you know... Could flare it, up. And... Yeah, I mean, going somewhere new, I find it exciting. That's not a trigger for me. It can be for some people on agoraphobia, being in somewhere that's unfamiliar and social phobias. But for me, I enjoy going new places, seeing new places, travelling. 
Um, it's more the intensity of kind of how busy or crowded somewhere it might spaces, be, yeah. um, and what control I have over that, depending on how I'm feeling at the time. So um, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. That was probably Incre a long. <laughs> no, no, no. It's absolutely incredible. Um, so you, you've kind of covered a little bit of your experiences with mental health and mental illness. Where where did that kind of first start for you? When 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 did that become quite apparent that mentally you were not in a great place? Um, it started around the age of 17, 18 for me. Um, and one of the things I remember when I was in 2016, when I was taken to hospital, as, as I do with a lot of people that, you know, for diagnosis, mm -hmm. try and look for what's triggered it. So, you know, right from did you have a traumatic birth? Have you had a good upbringing, a good home life? Were you bullied at school? You know, I was trying to look for a trigger like that. Yeah. And I think kind of 17, 18, I think going into early adulthood and into the workplace, I think I started to develop some symptoms which weren't really apparent at the time, but I think then what kind of brought them to a head was um, bullying and discrimination that I faced because of my age in the workplace by a manager. And that was kind of the first period um, where I started to question myself and doubt myself. Why was I being treated differently, spoken down to, um, discriminated against because of my age? Um, and that really kind of then knocked my confidence. Mm. And I think that has been, I wouldn't say a massive trigger um, kind of going forward from then, but I think that was kind of the first instance that I... Where you noticed yeah. that that was really yeah. affecting you. Yeah, and maybe I'm failing, I'm doing something wrong. Um, when ultimately it transpired that this person kind of had a bit of a history of bullying, bullying and staff and right. things like that. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it wasn't me. Um, but I think that's been a little bit of a part of in the back of my mind that when I've had other experiences that I've felt like maybe it is me. I'm, I'm to blame. I'm at fault. I'm a failure, which is kind of in the common common thing. And it's it's, you know, for people who from my own experience and other people who feel suicidal or, or make plans to end their life, um, that's quite a common theme that people feel like they're a failure. People will be better off without them, mm. um, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because you almost try and convince yourself that it is you that's the problem. Yeah. Um, and in more and more conversations, and there's a fantastic, uh, I think he's about 18 now, Charlie, but he's uh, on the advisory board, and I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning his name, but he's on the advisory board for the Ollie Foundation, so the One Life Lost is enough. And he says that suicide and suicidal feelings and people are, it's a people problem. So it's not actually just to do with the individual. We can't just look at the, the individual because it's not the individual that's yeah. just the problem. It's yeah. actually the society and yeah. the environment in which they've grown up in or yeah. been surrounded by that has impacted them to feel that way as well. Yeah, I think it's definitely some of the pressures of expectation. Um, I guess maybe on your upbringing, your religion as well might play a part in terms of expectations and mm -hmm. things around um, careers you should go into and the life you should lead. But I think also you know that the day and age we're in now uh social media where i think especially for young people you know it's it's a huge pressure um and and interestingly enough actually so i was at a conference last week with ian russell who lost his daughter molly um and there was obviously a very uh high profile court case about social media and the dangers of yeah. sharing things like self-harming content 
and that's what social media and our children are exposed can or can potentially yeah. be exposed yeah. to and it really shone a light on the fact that there there is no regulation in mm. that department children could be consuming any kind of content yeah. uh, their parents may not know what that is yet things like tiktok instagram there are so it's there are so many people on that platform and there are so such a wide variety of content yeah. that they're not aware and certainly I wouldn't have been aware at that age as well kind of 14 15 16 how that content could affect me yeah I, I mean I think it's not just kind of what people are exposed to but I think it's uh, you know the pressures I think there's still that pressure to look a certain way have mm -hmm. certain clothes that kind of thing and you know if you don't if someone has a perception that you don't fit the mold or you know, there's something about you that they don't like that they feel they have a right to say it. So, you know, trolling and online abuse um, can really impact on somebody's mental health. Mm -hmm. And even though it's somebody you don't know most of the time um, and, you know, might not even have a profile picture, but that one per one negative comment, it's like, you know, we might get 20 positives, but it's the we one negative, on the negative thing that mm. we, we get or we feel about ourselves that we focus on. So you might yeah. have achieved loads in a day at work and think, oh, there's that one thing I didn't do. And that might prey on your mind. Yeah, so yeah. we are very, um, you know, have a negative perspective often in, in terms of what we're doing. And, and certainly figuring out myself a little bit more and the way that I am a little bit of a perfectionist, that can really play on your mind in the sense that you may have done an amazing interview or amazing piece of work, but you focus on that one thing that you could have done better. And it's always striving for more and that then leads to dissatisfaction or not fully feeling fully satisfied and again that affects your mental health totally i mean when i started um therapy with a psychiatrist after 2016 um that was one of the kind of one of the themes where um you know looking at positives um and as part of um i forgot what it was called now um some of the things we were discussing and, and very much that i was saying but if i achieve you know out of out of 10 if i got a 10 on something it'd be like but there's still something there <laughs> I'd be always looking for what else I could do similar things when I've done talks and presentations and shared my story and things like that I mean one of the things I've learned is that you know the audience doesn't know what you're going to say mm -hmm. so if you forget to say something don't beat yourself up but it took me a while because I, I, I kind of go out and I think oh I completely forget forgot to mention those points That's like I probably exactly will after this yeah. I'll be driving back home and I'll be like Why I really I wanted that? to say that and I didn't George <laughs> can we do it again yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I look back on it a lot and especially with interview like similarly with this when I do my own interviews and stuff and I look back and I'm like, why didn't I say that I, I, like it's never crossed my mind and you've just know, mentioned it that actually <laughs> they don't know that you, did, you that you were going to yeah, say that so yeah, actually yeah. it's only it's only you it's that's only beating you. yourself up about it and, that you haven't that, said it yeah and that's the same around mental health I'm sure that you know many people felt like this I know people, lots of people I spoke to on my own experience again leading up to being suicidal and kind of periods of poor mental health in the mm -hmm. 20 years previous where I remember walking around the office being out in public and everybody else because you can't read minds, but apart from physical disabilities, you know, that's why mental health often refers to as like invisible disability. Because yeah. it, I remember walking around thinking, I can't tell if anybody else is feeling this way, is having these suicides. I must be the only one in the world feeling and thinking like this that I don't want to be here, I'm not mm. good enough, I don't plan to be here anymore. Um, yeah, and, and that can often be one of the difficulties, I think, for some people in how one they open up 
reach out for help and support, but also how other people recognise, because, you know, we all say, hey, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. It's yeah, so generic in there, isn't it? Yeah. Um, there needs if, to be more intrusive conversation. Intrusive is the wrong word, cause it, but, but you need to dig to a deeper level yeah. because it's so easy to just bat off and say, yeah, I'm fine, how are yeah. you kind of thing. But it, I, I have found that second, how are you? Like, no, actually, yes, how are you exactly. really feeling? Does offer that just just that slightly different twist to it that makes someone think a little it bit deeper. It shows that you're actually interested in their well-being, mm. change the tone, ask again. It's like, oh, they've maybe recognised my behaviour or my mood has changed. Um, I mean, one of the things that I do now, which uh, gradually as more and more people do, it becomes not, acceptable is not the word, but when people ask me now, how are you? I say, well, actually, and it's kind of a bit like, oh, God. I just thought, <laughs> I, yeah, um, I just thought you were going to say you're fine kind of thing. But It I'm, throws them off a little bit as well, it also, I think it also encourages other people to say, oh, do you know what? Because, you know, people always think, oh, yeah, my problem. I don't want to bother you with my problems, but I, I guess it's that old saying, a problem shared is a problem, problem halved. halved. Mm, 100%, definitely. So what... In terms of your experiences, obviously, uh, in contact with the, with the mental health services in the country and stuff, would you mind talking a little bit about what happened and, and your experiences and, and kind of what led you into doing the work that you do now? Um, yeah, so it, I think, first of all, in terms of the services, um, I think we all know that it needs investment right across the board in terms of healthcare. Um, physical, mental health and well-being, end-to-end journey and into social care, you know. Mm. Um, but I think I think one of the things that needs to kind of underpin that is the, the, the training and support that those health professionals are getting. From my experience, I've had people in the, in the health and mental health sector say things like, what have you got to be depressed about? Um, people will miss you if, if you weren't here. Um, and kind of some of the language that's been used um, is isn't helpful mm-hmm. and, and can just make somebody feel a lot worse I think and I know I've mentioned this to you before my biggest bugbear about when anyone talks about mental health is when they say mental health problem we don't say you've got a physical problem we say it's an illness a condition an injury it's a mental health condition mental health illness that's not to say and I think the biggest stigma around mental health is when we talk about mental health people immediately think you have an illness or of condition. mental illness. They but do. People have yeah, positive yeah. mental health as well. Yeah. Same as our physical health. It's a exactly. spectrum. Goes exactly. hand in hand with each other, um, and it impacts on each other. You know, so physical mm-hmm. injury, injury might mean we can't drive to work, play footy with our mates on the weekend. You get stuck in the house a bit more. How does that impact your mental mm-hmm. illness? Uh, and vice versa, and your mental illness. What might that do to your physical health? You might, you know, be um, diagnosed with severe depression, so you can't go for a run. You might start drinking more which you know might fuel your depression further um eating poorly so you know it it definitely goes hand in hand there's yeah and i think that's a lot of what i've been stressing and have realized especially the kind of corporate environment with mental health like you say when someone says mental health they automatically think of it in a negative light but like you say mental health is like physical health it can be good and bad it's a spectrum you can move from I don't know, mental health, you could move from a 9 out of 10 and then in the middle of the day you might be a 4 out of 10 and then you might go back up to an 8 out of 10. That's what mental health is, but mental illness is diagnosed conditions and disorders. Um, And I think that's what is difficult for people to understand or is the information Mm -hmm. that they've been fed is that just mental health just means that... So when someone says, like, oh, they, they, they have mental health, they're basically saying they are 
having mental health challenges yeah. but they think just saying oh they have mental health is just saying oh they're not in a great place yeah and whereas I think, it could be positive as well yeah and, and people might have poor mental health but might not ever get a diagnosis because mm. partly because of stigma around it they yeah. might not want to feel open up especially men um, um who we know with in terms of suicide rates three out of every four suicides um are men and globally one man dies every minute um, by suicide um but I think in terms of poor mental health, sometimes people might recognise, especially if they've um, had previous experience or, you know, in terms of their self-care and resilience, it's quite um, good. So they might recognise that, that their mental health is deteriorating, but actually then start to make changes to, to improve that. So, for example, mm. uh, exercise, talking, talking therapies, asking for help, reducing alcohol intake. Um, so it might not necessarily mean they get to diagnose if they recognise those signs. So what what did your what did your recovery path look like? How 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 did you begin to improve? Obviously, you were in a, a very very dark place. So what what were the steps that allowed you to kind of come out of that and then be able to then focus on improving and, and managing yeah, it better? The, the, the first thing I think, and, and everyone will probably heard, you know, it's okay not to be okay. Up until twenty sixteen, in my head, it wasn't okay mm. not to be okay, um, and kind of for me at that point of being taken into hospital by ambulance and then released and then taken back in and friends coming in with me and having discussions while I was in the room about do I need to be sectioned, do I need to be kept in and then put on crisis watch and, mm-hmm. and, and then um, my parents came and got me and uh, ended up uh, going back so they could kind of watch me, look after yeah. me. Um, and that was a whole... I think once everybody found out and, and, you know, I was getting messages and it was kind of trickled down, somebody told somebody, you know, and I didn't turn up for the things. Um, it was like a massive weight lift on my shoulders and I remember feeling, I don't care anymore. I don't care because it, it's actually a lot of energy goes into it's hiding masking, stuff and keeping yeah, that private. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's exhausting, yeah, it really is, it especially really is. when you get to crisis. Um, and, you know, I remember... I'd made kind of a plan because it was it was the day after my birthday and I'd made the plan this was going to happen after my birthday and the night before I was drinking heavily and because of what I planned to do I was kind of self-sabotaging and, and what I've later found out from therapy almost self-harming intentionally on myself where I was being rude and abusive to friends who'd come out for my birthday people were I think afterwards just some people had just dismissed it as maybe he's just had a bit too much to drink he's mm-hmm. been He's being stupid. We know he's not like this all the time. But I was intentionally pushing away friends and my partner yeah. and other people because I, I felt alone. I knew I wasn't, but if I knew that I had pushed everybody away, it was going to make it a hell of a lot easier for me to do what I intended yeah. to do and for people not to feel bad about me not being here. If that makes sense. And, and I think this, that's a really, really crucial point to highlight that self-harm, doesn't, self-harm and self-sabotage doesn't have to just be a physical act. Self-harm could be like pushing friends away. Yeah. It could be wanting to isolate yourself because that's the direction that you're going through. If you're, if you're feeling suicidal, then the, the easiest thing for you to do would just to be left alone and then, and then do what you, you, yeah. you thought you wanted to do. Yeah, and because I didn't feel like I was worthy of living anymore because I felt like a failure, I wanted them to hurt me. So, I, you know, in terms of what I was trying to instigate and push them away, and push them physically out of my way you know Mm. I was like you know and that sometimes you know can be if we think about kind of what I mentioned about the statistics around men um, you know men are much more likely to drink alcohol uh, might get involved in a fight sometimes that might not necessarily be you know through wanting to start a fight but 
through maybe a condition there might yeah. be signs and symptoms and, and, and a trigger there in terms of that self-harm but then when you think about kind of the prison service as well um supporting or maybe need to do more to support people mm. uh, not just men uh, in terms of mental health and how they assess people when they go in and, and, and how they support people when they when they come out after they serve their sentence too yeah and and i think not not to compare but obviously the prison service you get people that re-offend because yeah. there isn't much support yeah. out there for them to find their feet again and similarly that happens in the mental health services as well mm. people are discharged and sometimes uh, there was a guy on it last week that worked at, on a on a ward um, at a men's men's mental health hospital and he was saying some of them aren't mentally ill they're just re-offending re because it's a place yeah. to stay it's a safer place to be rather than if they were homeless or on yeah. the street or, or between kind of accommodations so it's about finding the right care yeah. for the patient of course um, but again there are obviously diagnoses I think actually at the moment I was well when I was in hospital I was diagnosed with EUPD so borderline personality disorder mm. but they're now potentially discussing about getting rid of that diagnosis because it's too complicated to mm. try and highlight mm. or understand and there's a lot of overlap with different disorders and conditions yeah. that that come that come with the borderline personality disorder yeah. diagnosis and i think that i mean the two things i was going to mention about homelessness but on diagnosis as well a lot of people don't realize it's quite common to have more than one mental health condition yeah and whichever one is presents itself as being more prevalent at the time you seek support or the symptoms you may display might mean and, and kind of i know in my case from speaking with psychiatrists when I went to hospital that I'd only ever been diagnosed with periods of mild to, to moderate and on, I think on one occasion severe depression um, but actually you know like I said um, anxiety um, OCD as well as kind of bipolar tendencies as well mm -hmm. and I think the other thing I was going to mention about because you touched on the homeless people there I mean that's another area where I think it's 80 85 percent plus uh, men are on, on the street mm -hmm. a lot of people I think don't appreciate that um, again, mental health has, has led to a lot of people on the street, as well as people who are LGBTQ plus as mm -hmm. well. A uh, lot, lot of young people in that um, protected characteristic, but a lot of them for mental health, where they might have um, turned to alcohol yeah. or got into debt, lost their job, lost their family, lost their home, and they end up on the street and end up without a job. And then, what's their coping mechanism? Where well, it's quite often coping mechanism a lot of us use, turn to alcohol and other things. Mm. Yeah, and and. What you don't realise, especially if your mental health is deteriorating already, is that that is compounding on it. Yeah. Um, I, I remember kind of when I was going downhill, I was using alcohol and drugs because it was allowing me to escape those negative thoughts. Yeah. But what I didn't realise it was doing was making it worse for me. Yeah. Um, and of course, that then snowballs and, and obviously you're just going to end up deteriorating further and faster. Yeah. I mean, I, I've over the years even since diagnosis but a lot more pre one of the things I remember doing quite often was especially when I was having a drink I mentioned already about maybe disappearing on a night out or just getting yeah. going home getting a taxi on my own I always used to get the taxi to drop me off 10 minutes plus walk or I get off a tube stop one before I needed to um, because of how I felt how emotional I was uh, and really let those emotions out cry walk home um, Partly because when I got home, I didn't want anybody to know, and I, and I, I felt it building up. And obviously, again with alcohol being a depressant, a depressant um, triggering my mood mm. on most occasions as well. But depending on the situation and circumstances which I'd left and how I felt, I would quite often do that. 
because I thought I need some space to be alone yeah to yeah, kind of yeah, get yeah. it out and uh, to be fair it's kind of in a way it's good that you gave that time and space to yourself although you may not have been in the best place but get, providing yourself with some space and some time to just kind of let it out rather than just going back home trying to forget about it because yeah. again we both know that trying to avoid it and suppress it and um, just disregard what's going on internally can yeah. exponentially make it worse as well. I can recall a few times where I've been in a taxi and I've almost, I'm, I'm about to have a panic attack, hurry up, hurry up, and then kind of almost holding it all in and the emotion and then the minute I get out of the taxi kind of just more or less exploding. Exploding, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, so should we talk a little bit about your work that you're doing now? Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, how you how you got into that? Why you got obviously what why you got into that is is self-explanatory. But um, what you're doing at the moment, I suppose. And yeah, I mean, it all started with um, kind of my main day job. Where so 2017, um, I said, oh, I think we need to do some more because everybody at that point I've seen you, as I said. So I kind of started to say to work in HR, can we do some more around um, mental health awareness? Um, I looked at the mental health policy. I started to get involved in work in that area and then it kind of first came around where as I started to make some recommendations and get involved in the mental health agenda and, and that area of work um, in the workplace first of all where somebody, uh, one of the um, senior managers said um, it'd be good if you could share your story and do a bit of awareness and, mm -hmm. and see how receptive people are as a starting point and that was a bit overwhelming I'm used to speaking in front of people anyway um, and what's weird is I think... I used to sometimes, like everybody, you get maybe a bit of butterflies, a bit of nervousness, public speaking. I used to get a little bit of that, but since sharing my story, apart from after the first few times, I, it's kind of, that's one of my anxieties has gone. Uh, <laughs> no. kind of funny, because I now do it so much, yeah, talking yeah. in front of people. And actually sharing such personal story, I mean, it's the most vulnerable you can almost yeah. be in a way. So actually, if you, you're, you're able to do that, then a lot of it seems a lot not yeah. easier but kind of a lot more relaxed I exactly suppose. yeah and I, I remember kind of um and ah and thinking mm, I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about this but I, I thought okay I'll do it and I remember a few people saying to me um, focus on yourself you still need to focus on getting back to being yourself you know you're still um, getting support and mm. you know all that kind of stuff um, and I thought oh well it might help me to talk about it and, and every single time I've done anything around awareness, training, telling my story, talks at conferences, in public, whatever it is. Um, I've always had people contacting me or coming up to me afterwards and saying, you know, um, apart from thank you, but um, I'm going to get help or I think I might Amazing. have had a condition or I haven't told somebody about what I'm going through. And not asking for advice, but almost giving them the confidence. So I think after that first initial time, I thought, actually if I do this and I help someone I save someone else yeah. then it's worth doing yeah. and then it snowballed from there really where I think it was then later that year 2017-18 uh, where people were saying to me you should do this and, and work with more people so I became a mental health first aid instructor a couple of years ago suicide first aid instructor so again working with um, private uh, public voluntary sector um, working with them on their um, 
people and wellbeing strategies, policies, communications, Amazing. engagement, all that, and, and helping to advise and support them on, you know, staff wellbeing overall and, and delivering training for them. So, and that's something I'm really passionate about as well as uh, I mentioned men's health. So I'm, a, I'm an ambassador for the Movember Foundation, oh, well, um, yeah, and yeah. obviously, and that kind of you're involved back, and I hope so. I'm also kind of a supporter volunteer with, with them too. So yeah, really passionate. Amazing about stuff. Amazing. Um, it's obviously very essential the work that you're doing, and thank you so much. And uh, you've obviously mentioned a little bit about Dean Russell, who is currently trying to make it a law that there are. Is it? Is it? There has to be someone mentally health, mental health first trained in every workplace in the UK. So he represented his bill. I think it was the 25th of January to basically make mental health first aid a legal requirement in the workplace. So hopefully that bill gets passed. Um, there are obviously concerns about, is that just ticking a box? What, 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 what do you think in, in terms of that, actually? I think, so again, some of, some of the organisations I've worked with and I've gone and done kind of initial awareness or presentation to like chief executives, boards mm-hmm. of companies, directors and things, uh, and got them involved in the conversation because I think some of the resistance to it has always been a little bit around um, but we don't want to make people counsellors because they're not qual- that's not the qualification but yeah. pe- some, sometimes a danger of people thinking that you know they're there to counsel that people and that's yeah. not part yeah. of the role but it having the same um, you know what the word is, but the same kind of priorities with physical first aid. Yes, yeah, You're yeah. You're there yeah. to provide there's initial help, there's support, keep someone safe, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and help them get that support so that they are safe. Amazing. Um, it's starting to rain a little <laughs> bit heavier now, um, so we'll 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 just about wrap up. It's been yeah an absolutely lovely conversation, Chris, and thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for um, having me. So the last thing we like to do is if there is one particular mindful technique that you employ that you think others could try and maybe enjoy, then what would that be? Get a dog. (laughs) I'm working on it. I'm working (laughs) on it. And any pets that you can cuddle and stroke, really good for releasing endorphins and serotonin, you know, that boosts our mood, makes us feel, you know, warm, fuzzy, oxytocin, and other chemicals that help us. Um, if you can get one like a dog, which obviously then gets you out in the rain, <laughs> all weathers, then you're getting physical exercise too, which again is good for you um, for boosting those uh, mood-enhancing chemicals. Um, the other thing I would say is, again, I know we're by the beach, but I love the sound of running water. Waves... And waterfalls so especially. I like, you know, again, thunderstorms and, and rain on, on the window pane too. But what I usually say on night, and I do it mo- more often than not, so the last few weeks I've had it on, is I usually say Alexa, play Sounds of the Seaside. Mm. And then I just, once it starts playing, I say turn it off in an hour. And I've usually drifted off because I just, it helps me focus. Because then I close my eyes, feel like I'm just laid by the beach. Mm. And it's so relaxing. Soothing, isn't it? Yeah. It's incredibly soothing. And yeah. it does... I, I, there's definitely a word for it. I can't remember what it is, but there's something that just, like... It's just really kind of... There's a, there's a, there's a feeling in your head that's just, like, incredibly soothing. And it just... Yeah, it, rela- just, it, it relaxes just, you. I mean, I love that feeling when you're on holiday in the pool or a beach and you're on a lilo and that rocking floating, motion as yeah, well. Yeah. And usually when I go to bed on the night, if I've been on, you know, on holiday and done that, I can usually feel a little bit like I'm rocking. And, yeah, and that kind of brings us back to kind of, our, you know, our child and youth being, like, of course, cradled being as baby rocked and, and, comfort and, and, and feeling safe, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and then the only other thing I, I've kind of had is, is talk to people. Mm-hmm. Again, yeah, we've talked important. about, you know, ask twice. It's okay not to be okay. Um, but be, you'd be amazed how receptive people are and how much support is out there to people. Amazing. 
amazing stuff. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for having me, George. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Um, thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. And we'll see you next time on Sally's Open Conversation. Goodbye.